So welcome to Vision Sunday. This is the first one we're doing as One Hope, right? Yeah. This is our first One Hope Vision Sunday. So welcome. Yeah, come on. We're going to have a bigger cheer than that for that. I'm just so grateful to God that we get to live with vision, that it's how God made us to live. we meant to live with, I mean, just imagine, just imagine your business without a vision. Just imagine your marriage without a vision. Just imagine your personal life if you lacked any vision and you had no vision for your life. It's, it's one of God's beautiful gifts to us, that He keeps putting a picture in front of us and saying, go for that, that's the vision, that's where I want you to go. It's a beautiful thing. But I remember sitting exactly where you're sitting and feeling distinctly cynical on Vision Sunday, own personal confession. So I'd come to Vision Sunday and I'd sit there and in my heart I'd think, what grand new plan have they got up their sleeves this time? Where are you going to lurch us off to this morning? Which, you know, pulling us from pillar to post and we're going to go from this direction. Anyone, you're not going to put your hands up, are you? (laughs) But I just want to settle some nerves in the room this morning. I just want to settle the nerves and say we don't want to lurch you off in some wild, crazy, new, brand spanking new direction. We want to invite you afresh into the story that's always been the story. It never changes. The unstoppable mission of God is unstoppable. It keeps on going. And I'm just reminding us. I'm just saying, come on, this is the mission. This is the vision of God. We don't need to come with our little feeble, lame attempts and attach it onto this grand narrative, this huge vision of God, His plan for the universe. Hey, you know what, God? We think we're going to have a One Hope 2020 vision. Do you mind? Just make a bit of space. We're going to come and attach this on over here. God's grand story of redemption, the unfolding drama of his plan. And the question we really get to ask is, God, how does my life fit into that? God, how do I bring my life in such a way that it comes alongside the grand mission that you're on and say, I want to be in? Some of you are really disjointed this morning because you're sitting in your seat that you haven't, yeah, you couldn't get your favorite seat this morning. I see you sitting in your same seats every Sunday and just looking out and suddenly I see different people in different places. I'm like, whoa, even I'm disorientated. But we get to say, God, how does one hope? This church, this community you've given us, God, how do we come and join in this exciting, inspiring mission that you've given us? And if you've been with us for a little while, you'd know that one of our kind of if I could call it a founding statement, a special gift at One Hope, is that we believe God has called us to be anointed plodders. That's part of our special gifting. Eugene Peterson has this beautiful phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. We're just putting ourselves and saying, God, we want to be obedient. A long obedience in the same direction. Some of the pictures we've had over our church, one of them is of someone building a wall and and God just coming week after week after week in our lives and just saying, I want to add another brick. I want to add another brick. It doesn't seem so glamorous. It doesn't seem so flashy. I just want to add another brick. Others, we've had numerous pictures of, actually even one this, this year from, from Riley, which was just so, such a wonderful reminder of how God wants to come and put deep roots in this picture of a tree. And deep roots, that's, that's one hope. If you're joining one hope, that's what we believe. God wants to root us. We're not going after the flashy. We're going after faithfulness. This morning, I want to share with you the seeds of vision that God has been planting in our eldership team hearts. It feels like there's something exciting and big 
and if I'm dead honest, really daunting, that's busy bubbling in our hearts, that's right alongside the mission of God. So I'm not contradicting that. Mission of God. We're just saying, God, we feel like we need to sharpen some things. And we've, well, I want to, I want to carefully share some of the process that's brought us to this morning and some of the implications that come out of it for you. This has personal impact. This has personal impact in our lives. And we've been praying for some months already now. Back from, I'll, I'll share the story with you, but we've been praying for some months that God would use this thing, this moment this morning as an ignition or a fanning of a flame of zeal in your hearts this morning. Okay, so turn with me in your Bibles to a very unusual text, to 2 Kings chapter 13. And I'm sure you're wondering, what are you taking us there for? But 2 Kings chapter 13, and I've got my props and I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to not injure anyone. I've got my boy's bow and arrow over here, and this thing can shoot. Let me tell you, they've been trying to take down pigeons in the backyard. So uh, let me give you a tiny bit of context of what's going on in, in the book of Kings. So if you remember, Israel's been set free, right? The great book of Exodus, aptly named. The Israelites have been set free from slavery. But what they quickly realize is that they aren't free from themselves. Anyone ever had that moment? You've been set free from something. You've been set free from Pharaoh. They've been set free from physical slavery. But they realize, man, I'm just as trapped in my own sin as I ever was back in Egypt. They're in the promised land. But because of their sin, they don't defeat the enemies around them. And the enemies are still coming marauding in and taking their wives and stealing their children and making them slaves. It's, it's awful when you actually go and read it and think through. Like if I was there, what would this be like? Gideon threshing his wheat underground, and we just think, oh, what a cool story. Not at all. Awful story. Awful stuff is going on. And this is, I mean, if you've been here, we speak about this all the time, the ongoing drama or the ongoing narrative of the Word of God. It's all the way so clearly painted in the Old Testament. People sin. Breathe out. Thank you, Jesus. God sends a rescuer. In the Old Testament, it's a Messiah-type figure. It's Moses, it's Deborah, it's Elijah, it's a prophet, it's a leader, it's a king, it's David. And this Messiah-type figure says to the people, no, no, we must follow God, we must go this way. And he points them in a new direction. And for a moment, they grab hold of that. And maybe in their lifetime, they serve God, but it quickly says, but their children forgot. Or sometimes even in their generation, they forgot. And God invites them faithfully again and again and again into the narrative. And that is effectively a summary of the Old Testament. They're unfaithful to God. God remains faithful to them. They carry on sinning. God carries on sending people to rescue and to help. And the cycle just kind of repeats. This is the drama. Now, Elisha, that we're going to read about in 1 Kings 13, is just like those. He's one of those prophets. He's one of those leaders trying to guide the people. And the king, so these are the two main people in the story. Elisha, prophet, trying to pull the people, say, come on, let's follow God in a true sense. And then there's Joash, who's the king at this stage, which is the very end of Elisha's life. And he's actually one of the kings that the Bible says did evil in the sight of God. He led the people into idolatry. All right, you got the context? Let's read together 1 Kings 13, 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. Aha. So he took a bow and arrows. 
Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hand. Hands, And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Apec until you have made an end of them. What a word. If you're a king over Israel who for decades have had people marauding into your borders, destroying your people, stealing your food. You can't just go to the pick and pay and buy some more. What a word. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. So here we have this this tried and tested prophet at the end of his life. And he's very obviously at the end of his life, right? Everyone can see this guy's dying. The king comes because they know that he's dying. So he must have been in, in great distress. But he's still in the state giving Israel his final prophecy. He's been faithful for decade after decade, bringing the word of God, often to kings who don't want to hear. If you go and read about Ahab and others. And even in his old age, it's estimated he's late 80s, early 90s here. Even at this phase of his life, his faith is magnificent and sparkling. His hope is firmly rooted in the Lord, his God. And he's determined to even serve this king who's taking the people into idolatry. He's wondering, I wonder if I could give him a word from God that's encouraging, that can help him to lead this people better. And so what he does is he gets Joash to to play the part. And I brought one arrow this morning that has a suction cup. So if it hits you, you'll be all right. All right? But I want to do this because it's such a brilliant visual demonstration and I've always wanted to fire an arrow at the crowd and wonder what happens. But this is what Elisha does. He, he basically gets Joash to play the part, like literally a prophetic enactment of what this prophetic word is. So imagine someone coming on a Sunday morning and saying, I feel like, like the Lord wants to tell us something as a church, but instead of just already telling you, they begin to act it out and they get volunteers up to come and show you what it is the Lord is doing. That's what's happening in this passage. Hey, 11s and 13s, it is so awesome to have you guys here. Let's well, just give these little guys a hand over here. Do one of you want to come and fire this arrow? <laughs> you want to come? Come, boy. Come, boy, come. This is, my, this is my oldest son. He's a good shot, so you should be all right. All right? But this is what he says. I want you to fire this arrow. And so he does. Will you shoot it at that thing right up high over there? What? Right at the back over there. Oh, okay. Don't fail me now, boy. <laughs> All the way at the back. Go for it. And he fires. Oi! <laughs> okay. Thanks, love. It's a good little man, that. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Assyrians in Apex until you've made an end of them. So this is what Elisha's kind of saying. Hey, in that moment, he's saying when, (laughs) this is my oldest girl. (laughs) He's going to meet my whole family. Elisha's saying to Joash in that moment, yes, we're doing a prophetic enactment, but we're not playing a game. 
We're not playing a game here. We, God is enacting you defeating your enemies. The arrow you just shot, that arrow that went flying back there, that's an arrow of victory, Joash. Can you feel this prophetic stirring from, from Elisha to the king? What an amazing promise for this king to receive. So you've got that context. Now he wants Joash to take the remaining arrows and he wants him to hit them on the ground in a continuation of this enactment, this prophetic enactment, right? Now what should be going through this king's heart? What should be pumping through Joash's heart in this moment? God has just said, I'm going to destroy the enemies before you. I'm your God. Trust in me. Have faith in me. And this is what Joash does. And Elisha is angry. Joash, Joash, so half-hearted, Joash. Where's your zeal, Joash? Where's the faith in your heart? God has just made you this wonderful, faith-filled promise. You should be full of excitement and zeal. You should be saying, yes, God, yes. Defeat my enemies. Defeat them, defeat them, defeat them. And he hits the ground again and again. I, I would imagine that if you gave the arrows to Elisha, that's exactly what he would have done. The 90-year-old man dying on his bed. If you gave him the arrows, he had faith still burning in his heart. He would have hit those arrows on the ground until he was sure that God had given him the victory. Joash's actions reveal his heart toward God. Faithless. No expectation that God would do more. It would just be the same old, same old. You with me? Now, let me leave that text. I want you just to bank that text for a moment. And you're probably asking the question, which is a good question, what does this have to do with our vision? And so I want to take you on a little bit of a journey with me over the last few months and tell you about a prayer meeting that we had. In the beginning or mid, I think it was the middle of October, elders and wives, we came together at my house. We were just praying on a, on a Thursday morning. And um, it's one of the wonderful gifts of having a German, Ollie, in our team is that he takes phenomenal notes. So every time we meet together, so I literally have the notes from that morning, and this is what we were praying. Prayer is placing ourselves at the mercy of God and independence on Him. Our effectiveness does not come from human wisdom or strategic cleverness. Prayer is the greater work. These are His notes as we're praying. And then, and then instead of just note-taking, Ollie says, in a moment of faith-fueled prayer while we're busy praying, God, we want our dependence to be upon you, not upon our strategy, not upon our, our own cleverness. Ollie begins to pray, and in his heart he says to us as we're praying, Father, would you bring 50 people to salvation through one hope in the next year? Did I, 15? One five? No? 50? And I just, want to, <laughs> I just want to open the window for you on that prayer meeting. This is what was going on in my heart. Why not ask for something more reasonable, Ollie? For goodness sake. Give us something to aim at that doesn't feel like it's so far away. You know, that, that, was, that was honestly my heart. Why not 15 or 20 people? Especially considering that the most that we know of, the most people who've come to know Jesus through this congregation in a calendar year is 12. That we know of. And praise Jesus for that. But I, I actually, in the prayer meeting, laughed. The laugh of, of Zechariah, or the laugh of Sarah, a laugh of doubt. 
And I said, I said to, to the guys, like, this is, this is crazy word. This is a crazy word. Now let me tell you about another prayer meeting that had happened about three weeks before that. It wasn't with the elders, it was with the Stellenbosch pastors. And there were about nine of us in the room, and it was just a beautiful morning. It was ridiculously early for some reason, because someone had a meeting. So we were praying, and I was already quite reluctant to be there, because it was like, I think it was half past five. And that means you have to get up at like five, which is very early. Um, and so we're praying, and there's just, sometimes with the Spirit, it just feels like, do you know what I mean when I say just faith comes into the room? And it just feels like there was faith. And the pastors were praying. And we began lifting up Stellenbosch and lifting up what God was doing in our churches. And it was, it was the best time of prayer I've had with these guys. And while we were doing that, I had a very, very strong sense about 1 Kings 13. And so I went to there and I read and I read the story about Elisha that I just read for us this morning. And so I was encouraging the pastor brothers and I was sharing the story with them that we were praying with faith that God would make us churches who cling to his promises, who believe him in faith for what he puts in front of us and who hit the ground until we see the victory with those arrows in our hands. Little did I know like most of us, that when God puts something in our hearts, we always think it's for somebody else. Sometimes God is saying, this is for you. And in a moment, can you see where I'm going with this? Back to our elders' prayer time, in that moment, the Holy Spirit brought this word rushing back into my memory. Rushing back with conviction. With a little moment where you've got to stop and say, God, I'm sorry. I see who I am in the story. And I thought I was Elisha, but I'm not. I'm actually Joash. I'm the guy half-heartedly laughing. <laughs> Shouldn't we aim for something more reasonable? And that prayer meeting, as we continued to pray, I shared that with our guys. I literally shared, as I was feeling that, shared it with our team. And elders and wives were just busy praying and something in my heart was just saying, Lord, let us not be Joash. Let us not lack zeal. Let us not fail to trust you when you speak to us. I mean, for goodness sake, 50 people, God is saving millions, millions around the planet. But at exactly the same time, as I'm thinking in my heart, yes, God, you can do this. I'm also thinking it's impossible. There's no way we're going to do this. Absolutely no way. I wish I could say that we, we left that prayer time convinced that God was going to save 50 people in one hope in 2020, and we never doubted it. I wish I could say I just walked away and we strode out confidently in faith with the armor of God and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith, and we just walked in and, yeah, here's the truth. We did feel some faith, a measure. We did feel the beginnings of a stirring, of a whisper, of confirmation. In fact, Ollie's actual notes say, let me just go back up there, faith for 50 salvations in the next year, bracket, God to confirm that number. <laughs> uh, we weren't even 100% sure it was God. So we didn't leave in some rah-rah space. Uh, just, just for a moment, just stand with me. I do know what the white chair is about. I want to tell you what they're about. Have you, have you guessed it? Just look at these chairs in the middle over here. 
That's 50 chairs. All right, 50 chairs without the danger tape. We'll take the danger tape away and make them blue so that people feel like they fit in, right? But this is just like a visual demonstration of saying, God, if you were to send us 50 people, that's where they would fit. That's where they would fit, right there in those white chairs. Now, I want you to stay standing, and I want you for a moment to, I want to actually invite you into the process of how do you feel? Right now, you having my prayer meeting, our prayer meeting moment, how do you feel? When you look at that, and if the responsibility, if you had to say, God, I want to own this. I want in my heart to say, yes, Lord. We want to believe you to send people to fill these chairs. What do you feel, guys? Nervous. I have the word written down here, terrified. <laughs> that was honestly the feeling I walked away with. I was, I was just terrified. God, if this is you, if this is you speaking, God, I'm terrified. This is my second thought. God, how do I lead this? How do I lead this? I'm cynical already myself. How do I lead others? Here's my third honest thought. God, what if I tell everyone it's going to happen and it doesn't? I'm the fool in the room. Am I prepared to do that? But then at the same time, as you're looking at those chairs, I want to, I want to ask Holy Spirit, would you flood us with a cautious excitement, if I can use that word, in our hearts? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God did? Wouldn't it be incredible if God did? What if, and I begin to imagine, what if some of the friends that I'm praying for and building a relationship with, what if, what if one of them, what if it's their year? What if God says, this year, Paul, I want you to actually take that relationship that you've been building for 10 years, constantly saying, I'm building a bridge, I'm building a bridge, and God actually says, I want you to drive a truck of truth, of gospel truth, over that bridge and actually have the conversation with your friend. Right? What if? What if? And so, these two emotions were right there on the grass as we were busy praying together. Fear. Hope, is this you, God? We hope it's you, but we also hope it's not you. We're terrified, but we're also excited, but kind of cautiously because we just are. Holy Spirit, right, right in this room today, I'm not trying to rah-rah any emotions. I am not interested in the slightest in doing something for a month that just falls away from our lives. But God, we do feel something of your stirring in the word that you've given us. And I want to ask that that stirring would begin to ignite flame to flame to flame in the room this morning, God, that you'd take old dusty dreams that people have dreamed and visions that you've given them and prophecies that you've spoken over their lives, God, and you'd shake the dust off those things in our lives where our courage has grown cold, where our hearts have grown so indifferent to the mission that you're on. Come and awaken us afresh, God, where our sin has dulled our senses, where we've achieved our dreams because we've sailed so close to the shore, as the poet says. Come and remind us of why you made us and what our purpose here is. In the name of Jesus, why don't you take your seats again?
And so over the process of months, we, the something in that meeting just took root in our hearts. And we began to talk about it, and we began to pray about it, and we began to wonder, and we began to all these things. And in moments, we felt great surges of faith in our hearts, and other moments, the, the familiar fears and insecurities were right there. I'm just being honest. And then we went away, and this was kind of the tacky hit the tar moment. We went away as an eldership team in November, toward the end of November, with Steve and Anna, who lead Jubilee Church. Many of you know them. They come through here every year. They're with us. And they kind of play like a, a mentoring role, an apostolic role, speaking into our lives. And when Steve was, he, we asked him to come and administer the whole weekend, and we were thinking about 2020 and just saying, God, what is it you want to do? And when he heard this word, just in a, in a Holy Spirit-inspired moment, he just pulled the handbrake up. And he just said, guys, stop the bus. If this is God, it changes the whole weekend. It changes everything. We can't just carry on talking strategy or talking this. We need, to, we need to find out and have an assurance in this room. Is this from God? Is this what God is saying to you? And so we just spent the first the Friday night and the Saturday, probably till lunchtime, just again, just seeking God as a team, just praying, just talking, just wrestling, just trying to say, God, is this you? We want an assurance. And there's, there's a growing assurance. But if you know God speaking to you, often it's not just a light of, you know, a lightning bolt, boom. It's this growing assurance in your heart. And God was speaking to us, and we prayed, and we engaged with God, and we felt a deep settling that this was the Holy Spirit. And this this was kind of something out of that time. Will you depend on me? So we felt God asking us as a team, will you depend on me? Go beyond where you could go, beyond where your strategy can take you. Will you trust me to do something in and through you that you could never achieve through your own efforts or cleverness? It's a call to faith, isn't it? Will you trust me? Me And I just want to say that there's a resounding cry that's growing in assurance from the eldership team. And then as we've shared it with our, with our wider leadership, we've spent time with our students and with other life group leaders. And there's a, there's a widening cry in our hearts that this is birthed of the Spirit. So let me, let me transition again. And I want to give us some clarity because I want to be abundantly clear on what we are going after and what we aren't going after. And I don't want you to walk out of here not understanding what we're saying. So this is the, I've got two quick points. And the first one is this. It should come up. Oh, there we go. That's beautiful. I like that. Expect more. Expect more. That's the first thing we want to say. God is stretching us one hope. This is bigger than we can achieve. We can't do it on our own. Remember last week I was talking about dependent doing. We need to do something, but if it's not rooted in dependence on God, it is bound to fail. Dependent doing. It requires huge faith, which is another word for trust in God. So let me ask the obvious question. What if at the end of 2020, 20 people, because it's 2020, 20 people have come to Jesus, have come to salvation. What do we do? What do we say? This is the kind of litmus test question, right? This is what we say. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, our God, for 20 
salvations. If you had to give me 20 salvations right now, I would rip your arms off. I would. Thank you, Jesus. That's incredible. So here's the big take home. This is one of the big ones from today. Expect more. This is not a number to hit. It should come up. This is not a number to hit. It's an expect more word. It doesn't feel to us like God is saying there will be 50 on the dot and if there's not, I failed you. That is not what we're taking from this at all. I'm putting this out here as a visual thing for us to say, God, stretch our faith. We want to believe you for more. And here's the, here's the most beautiful subplot for me or the beautiful part we can confidently say that we are slap bang in the absolute center of God's plan for his world. Remember I started off, we're not on some new pluck. We're not on some new mission. We're saying, God, bring us into the slipstream of your mission. What are you doing? How do we join in? Is the question we ask. Do, do you remember Luke 15? It'll be so familiar to you when I remind you what it is. But Luke 15 is framed like this. The, the Pharisees are saying, they're complaining basically. They're moaning at Jesus. And this is their complaint. Why do you eat with sinners? And their other complaint is, why do you spend all your time with people who are so far away from God? That's their complaint. And this is how Jesus responds. He, he effectively says, listen, you, you think you've got my mission down. You think you know why I should be here. So you're questioning me about how I spend my time. Let me tell you what my mission is. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the lost sheep. Leave the 99 to go after the one. Then he carries on. These are three parables in a row. Boom, boom, boom. Lost sheep, lost coin. The woman who loses a precious coin. And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors to celebrate. She sweeps her house. She searches high and low. And then he tells the story of the man with two sons. We'd, we'd commonly know it as the prodigal son. But it's actually two sons in there. He tells those three stories. And I want to just read for you out of Luke 15 how he ends each of those sections. So the section of the parable of the lost sheep. He's, he goes to his neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he tells the story of the lost coin. And then he, the lady calls her neighbors and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's profound. The man with two sons, the prodigal son, the older son is complaining. And the father says to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. Jesus is effectively saying, this is my mission. This is why I'm here. I am the sent one. And then here's the incredible, beautiful subplot. He turns to us and goes, and you're my little sent out ones. That's the message of the whole of the book of Acts. In fact, the whole of the New Testament in some way is a, is a fulfilling of Jesus saying, 
I'm the sent out one. So I'm, I'm just asking, what is the clarity? Do you see how clear it is that we should expect more than we are just seeing right now? One hope. Us. If we look around us on a Sunday morning, I think there should be a resonance in our hearts saying, God, we expect more. And that expect more is not of the elders. You might even feel that, and that's okay too. <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, I wish they had better this. I wish they did that better. That expect more is not an expect more of you. Although we need that too. But it's not, I wish you came to more meetings. I wish you did this. I wish you were that. This is an expect more. It's a, it's a child coming to a father and saying, Dad, you promised. Dad, you promised. And the father saying, it's my delight to fulfill that promise. It's my delight to fulfill the promise that I've given you. You know, I think about that, that text, 938. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. For the harvesters, the harvest is plentiful, but the harvesters are few. You know, I grew up believing that the harvest was the problem. It's these people in the world. They're just not interested in God. They don't care about, it's, it's TV. It's secularism. It's this, it's this. No, scripture contradicts that completely. It says the harvest is ready. That there's people all over our campus ready to hear the word of Jesus. That there's people in your workplace longing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not them that's the problem. It's us. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send out harvesters. Us. For the harvest is ready, but the harvesters are few. And so, my point is simply this. We can pray with confidence. We can pray believing that this pleases God, that this faith pleases God. Even, guys, if we have two people saved this year, I'm telling you, the Father is looking over this congregation. If we put our hearts out and say, yes, Lord, we trust you, He's looking over and saying, that pleases me. Faith in your hearts. That's what Abraham was declared righteous for. Faith pleased God. We're not coming to a reluctant God to twist his arm. So here's the big question. It's not will 50 people be saved this year. That's not the question we're asking. That's not the clarity. The clarity is do we trust that God could bring 50 people? Is our view of God big enough that we believe he could? Do we believe that God wants to bring millions to salvation and one hope gets to play a little part? Please, God, take us on your mission. Please take us with you, God. Expect more. That's what I want you to leave ringing in your head today. God, I want to expect, you from, I want to expect more from you, not my elders. <laughs> Just being cheeky here. The second thing I want to say is that it's not business as usual. This, this word, when we've, when we've sat and wrestled with this, we, we in our hearts are assured that this is from God, and I'm going to get to a moment just now where I'm not going to put that on you. I'm going to ask you to go and receive that from God Himself. That's not my job to force you to believe what we're saying, but we feel a deep assurance that this is from God. And so then we begin to process, Lord, because we believe this is from you, what do we need to do differently? Are there things we need to change? And it's an incredibly 
focusing word. Because if you think about it, we're saying, God, what would one hope need to look like if you were to add 50? If you were to add 50 people in this year, what would that mean of us? What would that demand of us? And guys, here's the, here's the biggest, here's a huge, huge thing that I could spend a whole sermon on. We're not looking for 50 people to put their hands up on a Sunday morning. We're looking for 50 people to be discipled in their faith, to know what it is to follow Jesus, to count the cost, for someone to come alongside and say, hey, come join our group. We're going to continue talking about what this means for us in our lives. You with me? Do you need a break? I know it's warm. Do you want to stand up quickly? Catch your breath. Stand up quickly. Catch your breath. Say hi to someone around you quickly. Just greet somebody. Say to them, this is important. Keep listening. (laughs) What would it have to look like? It can't be business as usual, that I'm sure of. Not for us as a church and not for us personally. As, as your leader, as God's placed us in this role over this church, my sense is that this is an absolute God word. That God is coming to shake our cage, one hope. That He's coming to say, I want you to depend on me. I want you to have trust in me. I want you to resist the temptation to exist just for yourselves. Like a pack of what is the right word for baboons? A troop. Like a troop of baboons just picking fleas off one another. That's how churches sometimes become. We're in danger just like that of picking fleas off one another all day long. Every Sunday we gather, we just gather for the believers. We're saying, God, thank you for this word that you want to come and remind us to resist this temptation that it's just about us. And now let me finish off with two things. It just got personal. It just got very, very personal. This is what we're asking as elders. This is what we're asking you to do. I'm asking you to go home and pray. To seek God and to ask Him if this is Him. That's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to go and say, God, is this word that you're giving our elders, is this from you? And if the answer comes back in your heart, a growing sense of assurance of yes, 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 it is you, then I'm going to ask you to say this, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's my role? I want in. This is a moment. You can sit back in your chair and you can metaphorically make popcorn and you can make your cup of coffee and you can sit back and say, I wonder how the elders are going to do this. And that's a deep temptation, right? I wonder if what so-and-so, they're so disengaged in the church. I wonder if they're going to engage and what they're going to do. I'm in the worship team. I'm already doing my part, right? Just go before God and ask that question. Lord, is this you? What are you asking from me? And my sense that if we miss this moment, we'll be so sad That we did because God is wanting to do something in our midst. And immediately, my own heart says, Lord, what if we doubt? And I was so encouraged in my time of prayer this morning, just remembering Mark chapter 9. It's the story of this, I won't tell you the whole thing, but it's the story of this um, demon 
this child who has a demon and he constantly is throwing himself into the fire and the demon's throwing him into the fire and throwing him into the water. The disciples try to cast this demon out. They can't do it. They come to Jesus with this, with this father, with his son. And the father says this. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation mark in the ESV, if you can. And he's just before that been saying, you faithless generation, how long should I put up with you? And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Something of that resonated in my heart this morning. Lord, help my unbelief. Can I just share personally with you that I woke up this morning, I've been praying and praying, not just this week, for months into this, with a growing sense of assurance. And this morning I woke up about 45 minutes before my alarm and I was lying in bed and the evil one began to attack me with doubt. As I'm going to come and preach to you, this morning, this is what he was saying to me, things like this. You know it's never going to happen, don't you? Guess who's going to look like a fool? And I had to get myself out of that bed. I had to get my tackies on. I had to go and walk in my neighborhood. And I had to cry out to the Father. And say, Lord, remind me again. Remind me again that this work is not me, that it's you. Remind me that that mountain that stands there as I look at it as I'm walking in my neighborhood and I see that mountain, I just, man, it's, it's such God's gift to me. It's been standing for thousands, millions of years. God, you're big enough. In fact, in just a, I'll tell you a little humorous part of my morning. Um, a little bit dodgy as well. <laughs> now I've got your attention. I've, I played a bulls competition, right? You know bulls? Um, steel bulls. And... Um, for Rhenish, and this guy that I was on the team with made this shirt, Guardians of the Bulaxi, ha-ha. But on the back, it's got hashtag, Balls of Steel. <laughs> and this morning, as I got up to go and pray, that's the shirt that I'd put out, because I put my clothes out the night before. And honestly, just in a little moment, even in that stupid little thing, just reminded as I pulled that shirt on, and I thought, God, it could have been one of how many shirts from my cupboard? Just remind me of the courage that we need. Remind me of the leadership courage that we need. So I know that's now the big, that's the take home you're going to take home. Hashtag fourth of steel. <laughs> but so this is the clarity I'm going for. Are we expecting God for more? And is it going to be business as usual? Or are we going to say, God, is this you? What do you want me to do? For one hope, that means some things. I have a whole list of things I'm not going to do this morning. I want to do another whole preach on it about what I think that means for us personally. I'm going to just trust the Holy Spirit to speak into your hearts this morning around how you can be changed and involved in this. But for one hope, I want to encourage us to four things. The first one is this, be in prayer together. Be praying alone, but man, let's pray together. Every opportunity we get, you meet a friend over lunch, why don't you take five minutes and just say, let's pray into this. Let's pray into this. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for my mom and dad. Come to our prayer meetings on a Sunday morning. Come when we fast and pray on a Tuesday. Come and join us. Come and pray. The second thing I want to say is encourage one another. I want to give you guys space to try and fail. To try, comma, 
and fail. I want to encourage you that we're going to go into our workplaces and we're going to share one-on-one evangelistic stories and it's going to go badly. And I would love to encourage you when that happens. Genuinely, I'm genuine. I would love for some of you to get up in the front of the church and say, this is what I tried and it was awful and this is what happened because I think sometimes we just put the celebration stories up there and everyone else sits and thinks, I could never do that. We can all fail. But just grace, I just want to ask for grace in the congregation for us to allow each other to try and to celebrate. We're going to go down some cul-de-sacs. We're going, to, we're going to make some mistakes. We know we're going to as elders. We know we're going to take us down some things. We say, oh, that was such a stupid idea. Just grace. Can we just have grace? Celebrate the faith. Trust the fruit to God. The third thing I want to say, what does this mean for one hope? Well, it's not business as usual, means that there's some changes on Sunday. You'll already notice as we've come into this year, we're trying to be more, today's a bit of an exception, but we're trying to be more thoughtful around double impact preaching. What that means is how do we preach to you who do believe in Jesus and to those of you who don't believe in Jesus? How do we preach in a way that, that does that? Um, this, is a, this is one that's going to make you laugh as well, but one of the things we need to do is we need to preach shorter. Right? There we go. Let's have a cheer. Thank you, Lord, that the devil attacked me this morning and my people this mid-morning. <laughs> Pretty secure around that one. If we're going to have people here who don't know Jesus, we need to be shorter so that they can engage because they're not, theology does not interest them. It's not exciting to have 50 minutes from Nehemiah, much as I love that. We need to be more thoughtful around our response moments. Just how do we ask people to respond to the gospel. Why do we do it that way? We need to be um, really, really thoughtful around it. I need to ask for the mature, those of you who are mature in Christ, to bend for the immature, to, to allow some of our preferences. We would love a series on Romans for 55 years. We would love that. And I need to ask you to put some of your preferences aside and to say, God, we sacrifice some of what we would like in this moment, the way the worship should look, the way church should function. We want some of those things. We want to say, God, if they are not gospel imperatives, we do not necessarily want to hold them up because they could be an obstacle to people. And if they're an obstacle to people, let's get it out. Let's take them out. Get rid of them. You with me? We need to sing more thoughtful songs. You'll notice our muso is doing a brilliant job just singing hymns. If someone comes in here who hasn't been in church for 15 years, they do not know Hillsong. Okay? They just think it's a stupid picture of a hill singing a song. Okay? It's ob to them. But if we sing a hymn, maybe, maybe it'll connect with something that they heard at a funeral or a wedding or a song they sang when they were at school. So we just need to be more thoughtful about these things. We, we're probably going to, we're still thinking about this, but we're probably going to do communion less on a Sunday. That does not mean we want to do communion less. We want to do communion more. We just want to do it more in our homes, more in your life groups, more in spaces where we don't all get up and say, only those who know Jesus can come and take communion, and then we all file up to the front, and the poor five people sitting down there are thinking like, wow, now everyone knows. (laughs) Maybe just take the communion and pass it out. So we've just got to be a little bit more thoughtful about these things. Are you with me? And hopefully as we do that, God builds a confidence in our congregation that when you bring people who don't know Jesus, we've thought about them. We're going to preach as if they're here. 
We're going to do a response moment as if they're here. And please have grace. We need so much to learn. It's so hard. (laughs) And then I want to just fill you with confidence that we're not suddenly switching to some seeker-sensitive model. We are going after the gospel week after week. The gospel is offensive enough is what I'm saying. The gospel is offensive. Let's not make silly practices offensive as well. Let's allow grace for the Spirit to move our practices and our model to accommodate others. And just another final little thought there. We so value your thoughts and ideas. So many of you, I bet you, right here, if I had to pass out a piece of paper, you could write down this morning why you don't bring your friend who doesn't know Jesus to One Hope. You could write a little note for me. Please do. Please do. It would be so, so helpful for us just to get that kind of feedback and to know why or how. Don't, this is not your moment to air all your criticisms. That's not that. But just if you've got a genuine reason that we could be more winsome, more thoughtful, won't you bring it? And the last thing I want to share with us, you've got those three, so I'm asking you to pray more. I'm asking you to encourage one another. I'm telling you about some Sunday changes. I'm encouraging you to bring some of those, to bring your ideas and thoughts and prayers to that. And then the fourth thing is that we, we want to look at this year and we want to leverage everything we can. Everything we can, we want to leave it. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, Paul says, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. It's a lot of laws. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the Lord of God, but, but under the law of Christ. That I, the point is that I might win those outside the law. Now listen to this. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what we mean when we say, let's leverage everything we can this year. In fact, this is not a this year word, guys. This feels like God is giving us a long-term correction, a long-term focus, that by all means I I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them all its blessings. Timothy Keller says, think intentional, not additional. Think about that. Think intentional, not additional. So do not leave here this morning feeling weighed down by what else do I have to add to my life? What is it I've got to add on and tag on? And uh, Paul, you don't understand how busy my life is. I do. I have five children. I understand how busy your life is, but we are not asking you for more. If God wants to ask you for more, He must ask you for more. Think intentional. Breathe out. We want to live with greater intentionality and focus in the spheres we are already involved in. In your workplace, on your campus, in the life group that you're in, in the worship team, in whatever it may be that you're involved in. We're saying, can we ask God to help us be more intentional? No one is asking, let's add a whole new strap of things onto our already busy lives. So here's a few very practical ideas of what we're trying to leverage. Our student camp this year, we've asked Taryn and Julie Williams, they are incredible evangelists. We've asked them to come and do our student camp. It's in the Karoo over Easter weekend, so we get away for four days, and we're encouraging our students already. We're already breathing this into the student body. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus that would be willing to come on a camp? Even if we've got to pay for them, we want to get them there. 
And maybe we see 10, maybe we see 20 people who don't know Jesus come to the Karoo. They have no signal. Taryn and Julie for four days, the Spirit of God moving, that's intentional. Saying, God, we want to take what we've already got and we want to leverage it. Jean and Marley have run a course in the past. They're going to start it again this year called Divorce Care. It's an incredibly evangelistic course for people who feel like they're on the brink of divorce in their own marriages. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to turn. You advertise it in the normal newspapers. You put it out on Facebook. People come because their marriage is in a state and they need help. And hopefully, as they're there, they meet Jesus. Intentional. We've got Alpha. Seeing people saved every year through this vehicle. Johan and Sune and Ryan and Natalie think about our marriage. That's what they think about all year long. They're thinking about marriages and marriage events. They're running the marriage course. They're reaching out to their friends who don't know Jesus. Hey, we all need to work on our marriages, right? The married ones. Why don't you come and do this course with us? Intentional, intentional, intentional. God is on an unstoppable mission. The question is, will we join Him? He is calling us to strike the arrows on the ground until we know that we have the victory. Will we be half-hearted, lacking trust, disinterested, full of faith, full of hope, 90 years old and still saying, Lord, a fire in my bones. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read Ephesians 3 as we close this morning. Let's read this together. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. to be strengthened with power through a spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.